0: Our reading is from the Gospel of St. Matthew, chapter 9, beginning in verse 1 to the end of verse 8. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, "'Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven.'" And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven, or to say rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed And go home and he rose and went home when the crowd saw it they were afraid and they glorified god who had given such authority to men this is the gospel of our lord jesus christ praise be to you lord christ well dear friends it's pastor ryan here welcome back to the christ church oceanside podcast we are breaking new ground today it's a big deal we are in chapter 9 i i did the, <laughs> i did the numbers uh this week and i started teaching the gospel of matthew in uh december 1st 2019 we are a solid 3 years later and we're just hitting chapter 9 now i think i should say to defend myself that i did take a few breaks and did other sections of scripture along the way so it wasn't that I was just in Matthew all this time but yeah we're moving a little slow but I'm pretty stoked to be moving into chapter 9 today there's just some beautiful things in here for us to unpack and I'm I'm just really blessed to to be in the word with you to enjoy Jesus with you, it's just such a privilege. And I've just been feeling that so thick in the last week. Now, I think the big question that's going to come up for us in this one is this, and I think we need to ask it of ourselves, is do we, as followers of Jesus, have faith in him for others? Do we believe he is good enough, strong enough, and faithful enough to make his salvation known and experienced. Enough that we would invite others to hear about and to receive this Jesus. I I really think it's time for the church to again be a place of confident hope, bold witness, and eager anticipation to see the salvation of God at work In the the world around us. Like do we actually believe Jesus is at work on the island? And if we do, are we telling people about it? And I think that that is so important. Now this next text of scripture is going to showcase what that looks like. So let's begin with verse 1. And getting into a boat, he, Jesus, crossed over and came to his own city. So Jesus honors the request of the Gerasene city that we saw at the end of chapter 8. Before this, he heads back to Capernaum, into that region. And I think it's just worth noting, I don't think people realize the significance of place in Jesus' story, but also how he doesn't really have a place. So when he talks earlier in chapter 8 about not having a place to lay his head, I think that's very true of his lived experience his father comes from nazareth so that's the place that jesus is conceived in the womb of mary uh, by the holy spirit not by joseph but then they go to bethlehem for the census where jesus is born but then jesus is essentially chased out to egypt where he flees herod And then Jesus returns back to Nazareth, but when he goes public with his ministry, he's rejected by the people there, and so makes his ministry base in Capernaum. Now, then his ministry is working its way towards Jerusalem, but what does he find in Jerusalem? Uh, But he ends up being rejected there by the people, by the religious authorities, by the Romans, and crucified. And so... That really resonates with me, especially as a kid who moved around a lot. I was in 13 schools before I graduated. And I think Jesus really um, has lived the experience of displaced peoples, refugees who have found themselves moved out of their homes and into other places. But it's good news for us that we can find the Father, know the Father, live with the Father, as Jesus did in circumstances such as that. Now verse 2 goes on, and behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. Now these people, I'm guessing, felt like they missed out on Jesus's earlier ministry that was in Capernaum, like all the healings and the crowds that are coming to him and all that's going on. There's probably this sense of like, oh man, we missed our chance. But now they've had time to prepared. They hear Jesus is coming. Their hearts have been kind of eager waiting for another chance and hearing about his return they rush to be present with Jesus with the paralyzed individual on a bed or on a mat. I think the special beauty in this story is because we often hear people with physical challenges in the New Testament time being alone especially in the Gospels and likely having been abandoned by family and friends. Here we see the opposite. They have banded together to make sure the person that they love gets the care they need and the care that only Jesus can give them. Now, our current cultural climate has a lot in common with this time period that we're in in the scriptures. With the Roman culture and religious culture of Jesus' time, our culture actually has a lot of um, overlap with that. Like the religious system of the time would view any physical malady as the fruit of sin. And so it's very individualistic. Like if you you get sick or you get hurt, then that's somehow connected to your fault and you're on your own. The Roman system only valued strength and power. There was no dignity in weakness or suffering. So you were discarded. The sick were sent out and unwanted children were literally thrown into the trash. So for Jesus to come onto this scene and into that cultural moment, he's a beacon of safety, of dignity, of value, and hope in a dark world. He's a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. So if you fall into that category of severe hardship and difficulty and even loneliness, Jesus is your hope. Jesus gets You and gets that. Now, I think this is why, too, the early church is known for these same things feeding the poor, caring for the sick, adopting the orphaned, and seeing the dignity of suffering and the meaningfulness of this life, knowing its impact on the next eternal life. And I think this is why the church will never support abortion and made physician assisted dying. Because they're the antithesis of our faith. It's in our culture, it encourages you to prefer self over others and even death over dependence. These are some of our highest values in the way of Jesus, is that we need to be saved from a focus upon self and love others as we would love ourselves. And even coming into weakness or dependency in old age or sickness, we don't disparage that. We don't look down on that. That's a sacred space where we get in touch with the true reality of our relationship with God that it's okay that we need. It's okay that we depend on him. We were never meant to be our own gods and to care for ourselves in selfish independence. That's a holy space. So as you age and have to depend upon others, that's a beautiful space that we dignify as holy. Now, verse two goes on. When Jesus sees these people, what he sees is their faith, because this is what Jesus is looking for. For so long, humanity's been asking for God's intervention, and God has been promising it. Jesus is the fulfillment of all of that, of every ask and of every promise. What Jesus sees in their eyes is soft-hearted, vulnerable trust, and he loves it. This, This is what Jesus is looking for. What does faith look like? It looks like bringing your true state to Jesus. No facades. Just you and your need. That's the most appropriate response to God in Christ. Here's what he says to the paralytic. Take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. Now imagine you are part of the group of friends and family that brought this man to Jesus. Would this statement have been a disappointment to you? I think initially, probably. I think you would hear this and go, this isn't actually what we came for. We came here for a physical solution. So here's the question. Is Jesus intentionally avoiding the obvious? That they were looking for physical healing? Here's a few things I think of what Jesus was doing. The first is, I think Jesus sees the person, not the disability. This statement, take heart. He wants to bring relief to this man's heart, to the place of greatest suffering. And so what that means is, I think, secondly, Jesus sees the man's value and embraces him with these words, my son, take heart, my son. I think where other people can tend to see, you know, the the suffering. Or the disability or the hardship of it or the limitations that are there. That that's what primarily other people see because that's what they're focused on. Jesus doesn't see it that way. Jesus cares about the heart and Jesus gives value to the person. Take heart, my son. And with these words, he embraces him. He brings him into deep closeness with God. The third thing that Jesus says in this sentence is key. Jesus sees the greater need. Your sins are forgiven. Sin is the real problem in this world. Sin is what's broken our relationship with God. Sin is what's broken our relationship with ourselves. We're no longer living the way we're meant to live, our true purpose, um, enjoying the creator, enjoying the creation. Instead, we're desperate. We're working super hard all the time to try and take care of ourselves. This is what sin does. Sin breaks the human heart. And sin breaks human relationships. And sin is at work always to destroy and devour. And here's the uncomfortable truth, I think, about Jesus' statement to this man. But I think it brings the most substantial relief. Jesus is saying to the man, your greatest problem is not your disability or your situation. Your greatest problem is you. And you know it. And that's the hard truth I don't think we want to ever say to people especially to people we love, but Jesus is confident enough in the solution to be able to identify the problem, to be able to say, no, your biggest problem, even in the hardship of your situation, the biggest problem is you. Your heart is causing you to suffer above anything else in this world. Think about that for a second. Your greatest cause for suffering is your heart. Why? Because it believes wrongly about God, firstly. Our human heart, I think the way we've been taught and it's ingrained into us and it's in our nature now, is to believe that God is not good. God does not love us. God has abandoned us. God does not want to help us or care for us or provide for us. And God cannot or will not save us. So we we have these ingrained thoughts that go, Oh, why do you hate me? That I think is the beginning of sin. The second part though is it believes wrongly about us. We see ourselves through sin. We hate who we are. We grieve deeply, we are impatient with ourselves and frustrated with ourselves and angry with ourselves and shameful and all these things this is what sin makes us feel about us and it causes us to see the whole world in a twisted way and heaps heavy burdens upon us and then punishes us when we fall short or are not perfect or cannot attain godhood level independence this is what sin does to us. It's crushing us, and our hearts are mired in it. This is why Jeremiah 17:9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Who can make sense of this mess? This is the very thing that Jesus is zoning in on to say, I can deal with this. Your heart is a mess of lies about God, about yourself, about the world, about what you're made for, about what you're meant to do. And all those lies have made you desperately sick. Who can make sense of this? I can. This is what Jesus is doing. Now, honestly, when you hear this story, how do you imagine the man responded to this? Here's the way I see it. Because I think I know the lies and the sickness and the confusion of my own heart. I think when I realize just how much mess it creates in my life, if I put myself in the spot as laying on that bed and Jesus speaks these words to me, I picture my head falling back on the bed and weeping with relief. finally, A solution to the problem I haven't been able to make sense of. Finally, salvation for the parts of me that nothing else seems to reach. This is the truest healing that I need in this world. If we hear this story and go, oh, but he he didn't just heal the man's body. We're missing the point. Jesus is unveiling in this moment the real power of the salvation he's bringing to the world. It's not momentary fixes. It's eternal fixes. Verse 3, it goes on. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. So they're either just saying this in their own heads Or whispering it to each other. But the sense we get from the text is that this is an internal conversation. So why do they think this is blasphemy? It really comes down to this. Only God can forgive sins. Theologically, scripturally, this is absolutely correct. What makes Jesus' words blasphemy to them is that Jesus is either seeking to usurp God or to be God both of which they believe to be wrong. This is the heresy of the highest form. So verse 4, this is where things get a little wild. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts. This is actually verse 10 in Jeremiah 17, because the follow-up after verse 16 about the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick, who can understand it? Verse 10 says, I, the Lord, Search the heart and test the mind. So Jesus knows exactly what they're believing in their hearts and the thoughts of their minds. Why? Because he is God. It's such a subtle flex in the moment. And I love it. Because they're going, who is this guy to say he's God? And then because he is God, he knows the thoughts of their mind. And goes, why do you you think these things? So what does Jesus here? What's the contents of their hearts? He says this, why do you think evil in your hearts? Evil. Think about that for a second. Jesus defines disbelief about his identity as evil. These men think they have the perfect grasp of the scriptures. Yet somehow are missing how the incarnate God in flesh son is the pinnacle fulfillment of biblical and theological truth. Jesus is the most godly thing there has ever or will ever be, and they see it as blasphemy. So the thoughts of their hearts are evil because evil hates the humility, and the love of God. They cannot fathom that God would be so motivated by love that he would humble himself and take on flesh, let alone suffer and die for us. I think this is why the Apostle John says in 1 John 4, 2 and 3, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses, that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. I think this is what it comes down to: is that when you're discerning other teachers and other leaders, whether they claim to be Christian or not, does the message communicate the extravagant love, mercy, and grace of God coming to us in our sin? to bring us salvation, or does it come proclaiming God's judgment? Because this is how these guys think. They only think judgment. And the idea that God would love and be so humble enough to enter into our human plight to save us is beyond their scope of believability. But it's all through the scriptures, This idea that God will send a Savior, that God will come in human flesh, the God-man will save us. So verse 5, this is how Jesus responds to this. For which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? Y'all, Jesus is being sarcastic. Jesus is being spicy, And, and I'm here for it. He's essentially saying, who do you believe God is? Is he the creator? Because obviously, if he's the creator, it's easy to tell somebody to rise up and walk. But also, is he the redeemer? What's easier for God? I think the easier one is to say, rise up and walk. It's pithy for the creator and sustainer of the universe in comparison to the problem of sin But so then here's what Jesus says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. What this shows us the way Matthew tells it is that this is an act of grace on Jesus's behalf, both for the sinner and the skeptic. He's doing it because he wants them to know that you may know. He does it to help them see He doesn't have to, but he wants to. So this helps us understand the way physical healing works for Jesus' ministry. It acts as a witness to the reality of the saving power of Jesus for the sins of the heart. So, should we want this to be part of our testimony as a church? That this is the place where all find salvation and the broken find healing? I think so. I think we should confidently proclaim salvation in Jesus for sins and pray for healings knowing that the greater miracle has already been given, the salvation of sins. So then the next statement is, and he rose and went home. This is a mic drop. (laughs) This is Jesus going, oh, you want to challenge this? You disagree with this? Let me prove it to you with the seemingly impossible. And he heals the man of his paralyzed state enough that he can stand up and walk home by himself. When the crowd saw it, they're afraid and they glorify God who had given such authority to men. And this is, I think, what I love about the tensions of Jesus, is that for sinners, the, he is the safest place in the world to be. So you're both safe and afraid when you see his divinity, his godhood, that I'm safe and afraid. I'm safe, but I respect it. It's far beyond me. And so who do you glorify when you see this? You glorify God. Why? And this is an interesting statement by Matthew, because God gave authority for salvation to a human. So what does that mean? I think the point of all of this is that this is what Paul talks about in Romans 5. Jesus is the new Adam. So hear about how Paul describes it. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. grace abounded all the more so that as sin reigned in death grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through jesus christ our lord we all have this sense of like sin and evil and the wrongs of this world seem to come down to us through our lineage and through our genetics and and through our families and through life in this world Paul puts it as we could trace it all back to Adam and his sin. But now a new man has come, fully human, fully God, and bringing full salvation for all people. And in this new man, we're all saved. I like the way the First Nations translation says this in Matthew. This is how it kind of talks about this story that we're in. This is how you will know that the true human being has the right to forgive bad hearts and broken ways on this earth. He turned to the crippled man and said, Get up, roll up your sleeping bundle, and walk home. Only the true man can do this. Only the new Adam, the Savior of the world, Jesus, can do this have the power to forgive sins knowing that he will pay for sins and to heal the sick and the lame and the and the broken by this world because he's their creator this is jesus the god man so i think for us as followers of jesus we need this level of confidence to start going where are, my bro- where are my friends and my family who are broken down by life in this world? Where is sin eating their hearts from within? And where is the brokenness of this world showing itself in their bodies? And do I have the bravery and the confidence to say to them, I know you're struggling. Let me take you to one who can help. I know you're hurting. Let me take you to the one who can heal. I know your heart is broken. Let me take you to the one who can forgive your sins. I truly believe that Jesus is working, that Jesus is moving in our world and on the island today. And it's time for us as the church to again become confident in him enough to bring all that we can to come and hear about this Jesus. This, my friends, is what it means to be a follower. And this is the way of Jesus. Amen.